hey, go ahead and grab a seat. I know we still have people coming in and checking their kids in, but I really want to get started on this sermon today. It's a heavy passage, I think, but it's going to be very helpful for us. So listen, if you have brought a Bible or a device, turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. My name is Luke, by the way. I know I haven't met all of you. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the teaching pastor. Excited about this passage. I think it's going to show you, and I know I say it every week, I think it's going to show you Christ more clearly, but I really believe that this is going to show an angle of the gospel that might be new for some of you. So let's look at Psalm 42. This is from one of the sons of Korah. I'm going to explain what that means here in just a minute. But this is the word of the Lord for us. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And here's the main stanza. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All the breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I think this is a helpful passage and just giving us insight to what a downcast soul looks like. This is talking a little bit about depression. The reason we're going to focus on this in our work on the book of Psalms or a series we're calling Anthem, which is just a rousing song that connects to people on an emotional and even a level is because I think it's been helpful for the church in the past. And you can't, listen, you can't really talk about anthems in our country's history without mentioning the Rolling Stones' work in 1966. They had a song called Paint It Black. If you're my age or around my age, you are familiar with this song from Full Metal Jacket. It's actually playing during the credits. There was actually another series on the Vietnam War that was in the 80s. It was called Tour of Duty, and it played through all the opening credits. So over time, especially if you grew up in the 80s, you just came to know this song, Paint It Black, is a Vietnam song. And it's true that in 1966, that was the climax of American involvement in the Vietnam War. Now, when Mick Jagger wrote this song, he said it didn't have anything to do with the Vietnam War. It was actually based on depression that came from a bad acid trip in an attempt to escape depression, just the, the second wave of depression that comes. But by then, it had already been adopted by millions of people as this countercultural anthem of depression because, again, the Vietnam War was in full roar. 
You had the civil rights movement. You had the Cuban Missile Crisis. A couple years later, PTSD would be a newly minted term for everybody. Here's a couple words from this song, Paint It Black. I look inside myself and see my heart is black. I see my red door, I must have it painted black. Maybe then I'll fade away and not have to face the facts. It's not easy facing up when your whole world is black. We've been talking about in this book of songs how a good song, whether it's on the radio or off in an app or even out of the book of Psalms, which are songs, a good song expresses you and it forms you at the same time. Two different functions. A good song will express us and will form us, right? And when it comes to songs that express and form who we are, you won't go any deeper than songs that touch on depression. You'd be hard-pressed to go and find a musician or any kind of musical artist at all that has not done some treatment or some song or album on being depressed, right? Because they know what it feels like, and they know that the people that listen to their music, they know what it feels like as well. In fact, not too long ago, this year, June 21st, Demi Lovato released her song, Sober, and that was really her coming out, letting her fans know that she has left sobriety. After a long, hard-fought, ferocious battle with depression. I mean, in a recent interview, she talked about how she had depressive thoughts leading towards suicidal thoughts as young as the age of seven. So she's bounced in and out of depression most of her life, and here she struggled, and she was just going to let everyone know she is done She's come off again. She says this in her song, Sober. I've got no excuses for all these goodbyes. Call me when it's over, because I'm dying inside. Wake me when the shakes are gone and the cold sweats disappear. Call me when it's over and myself has reappeared. Mama, I'm sorry I'm not sober anymore. And Daddy, please forgive me for the drink spilled on the floor. To the ones who never left me, we've been down this road before. I'm sorry, I'm not sober anymore. Now, if you're a pop culture buff or you were just watching what was happening around this song not too long ago, people rallied around it. I mean, if there's ever been an anthem for the depressed, this quickly became it. Especially for those who have escaped sobriety because it was just too hard and suffocating to live without medicating depression in some way, shape, or form. It became a rally cry for a lot of people. Why? Because it connected on a deep emotional level. It formed and it expressed them. Sad thing is, is 33 days after the song was released, 911 was called, officers deployed to her house where she was found overdosed on a very aggressive variation of methamphetamines. She's still sad. She's still really sad. I pray Jesus changes her life. I pray Jesus ministers to her. Here, listen to me. The Bible assumes you're going to find depression. It just assumes it. Think about it. 67 out of 150 psalms are laments. Almost half of the book of Psalms knows that it's speaking to a people who want to paint their world black or escape sobriety in some shape because it is just really tremendous the amount of sadness that can find us in this lifetime. And some of you know this, and some of you are here and you're depressed today. Your soul is cast down, as this psalmist, this poet would say. For some of you, it's an episode type of a thing. It's episodically that you find depression. For some of you, it's more pervasive. It can span over a year or two. For some of you, it's just your normal, right? I mean, it's the days where you're not depressed that stand out, not the days that you are. 
hear me, the Bible is not expecting that you pretend that that doesn't hurt and is not horrible. The Bible is not hoping that you just stuff that in a can any more than it's expecting that you would medicate from that. So today our poet's going to lead us into a very precious place. He's one of the sons of Korah, as I said. And the sons of Korah was basically like a worship team back then. Back in the day where this was written, it was a puddle of priests that had this special charge of ministering through song, right? Because remember, I mean, these psalms were basically like a, this is like a hymn book almost. Anytime there'd be a big public gathering at a tabernacle or something like that, a festival, they would dig out the book of psalms and dust it off just like we would a hymnal today. In fact, we talked last week about how important that is to have our emotions and our imagination roused by deep anthems. Because we're not just thinking mainframes just always interacting with each other with logic and facts and systematics, but we're also emotional feelers as well, right? We connect to each other on an emotional level. We have emotions. So yes, we're, in, we're, we're formed by things like hard doctrine. We're formed by systematics. We're formed by logic, but we're also formed by, by emotions. It's not just what we think, it's what we feel as well. So. Today, we have this beautiful opportunity to look at spiritual depression. I know that sounds odd, but we also get to see how Jesus alters it, even if he doesn't take it away. And then we get to see finally, and I hope to get there, and I hope to do a good job with helping you walk through suffering, walk through a special kind of downcast depressive suffering whenever you do find yourself in the middle of it. And just for free, just so you know, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 likely go together, okay? Um, you that stanza of this poet talking to his own soul, you can actually find that in the next psalm as well, Psalm 43. Psalm 43 also doesn't have a title, and in a lot of manuscripts you will find those two put together. So it's, it's likely that they are both connected we're just going to spend time on 42, but that is a charge for you whenever you get time to look at 43 whenever you get a chance, because it is very, very helpful. But as we read through it, you could feel the longing that is expressed. It is a lament, but it is a lament of longing. I mean, the main idea of this is this poet runs to a stream, you know, metaphorically. He's running to God, expecting God's presence in a very tangible way, only to find none. Looking but finding nothing. What he finds, however, is mockery. Mockery from his tears, mockery from the people around him. It's important to know he has not lost his belief in God. He's just lost his feel of God. But that's no small thing, is it? Christianity is largely based on our feel in God's presence, right? In fact, if you take God's presence away from us, that's just the mathematics of hell. That's just the mathematics of hell, of not feeling God's presence with us, not having God's presence with us. Think about it from this poet's standpoint. Psalm 77, a totally different poet, also who lost the feel of God. He says this in the first verse, I cry aloud to God. And then he repeats, aloud to God. And he will hear me on the day of my trouble. I seek the Lord in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. He's flopping back and forth. You can see it as you read it. There's a war between his gut and his mind, what he feels and what he knows. Now, in our psalm today, the mockers are saying, where is your God? 
that, that tells us something has happened. Something has gone wrong. Something is destroyed and in pieces. For mockers around him to say, where's your God? See, sometimes it's not just our tears that mock us. It's going to be those that are close to us. So we have this moment where God is seemingly gone. And so the big questions are, God, why did you leave and when will you come back? And then to capture this well, he does what all good poets do, what all good songwriters do, and he finds a powerful image. And for us, it is a thirsty and tired deer, right? In fact, that's become a little bit of a logo and an icon for the whole book of Psalms. If you were to go to any bookstore or go on Amazon and look for books on, on the Psalms, you'll find one with a cover with a deer next to a river, which doesn't even capture this because there is no river. That's the whole thing about the Psalm, right? Or if you grew up in the church like I did, did you not sing the song, as my soul pants for the water? Or no, so as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after thee. But it's such a tranquil song, right? Such a peaceful song. It doesn't really capture the mood of this, though. Not the right vibe. This would be a lot of guttural screams and weeping and things like that. It's not just a deer by water. It's a tired and thirsty deer next to a dry riverbed. No water. Just drought. And that's a problem because deers aren't camels. Camels can go for a long time without water. Deer are not like that. They need frequent water. Listen, you are not created to enjoy long droughts from God's presence. Not created to enjoy that one bit. If you have a pervasive drought in your life, that is meant to unsteady you. It's meant to unsteady you. Listen, God, in his brilliance and in his wisdom, will administrate droughts in our lives from time to time. That's meant for you to work through, to find a deeper intimacy with him through, but it's never really something that you're going to enjoy. You'll bump into seasons, some of you already have, some of you are in the middle of one now where it just feels like God is not tangible, he's not present, he's not there. And as much as it's driving you to his feet, as much as it's driving you to a place where you are searching with both hands, you're looking with both eyes, and your heart is at his feet, as you're doing that, when you come out of that, you taste this sweet presence with the Lord. But even then, you would never look back and say, yeah, I really enjoyed that drought. That was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. So listen, if you find yourself tired today and thirsty and in a drought, this psalm is for you. This is your psalm. It's all for if you're weary or sad, downcast. If that is you, this psalm is your psalm. I'm saying that because it's a challenge for you to memorize it. And I don't mean just memorize like, the words in a certain order in your head in the exact same way. I'm not talking about that, like you would memorize something in school. I'm talking about you taking a piece of scripture and making it instinct, making it reflex, making those words your words, so that whenever you find yourself downcast, you find yourself here just as fast. It makes sense, doesn't it, that we would do something like this? I mean, because whenever you listen to the radio or you listen to whatever playlist you have, I mean, isn't it often that a song comes up and it just resonates with you? It captures your imagination or you say, that song gets me or this artist gets me, all their stuff gets me, and it just kind of becomes part of your soundtrack, right? I truly believe 
that as much as this whole word is your word, you will bump into moments, you will bump into passages that you need to take and make a part of your mixtape and make a part of your soundtrack. You have to commit them, not to just memory, you have to commit them to your soul. And if you find yourself downcast, even often, this has got to be a part of it. Psalm 42. And I'll say a downcast soul is kind of complicated, so I'm going to shoot broadly. There's really no way I can do a super responsible job in 32 minutes by being very specific in this, but I am going to be responsible and teach the Bible, and I just can't deny that Psalm 42 is a bit of a playbook for the downcast. But here's the truth. I don't know what made your soul sad. Or your spouses, your parents, or your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, those you're in community with. I don't know why sadness is in your orbit. I don't know where downcast came from for you. For some of you, it's a physical thing. Some of you, it's your personality. Something happened to some of you. For some of you, it's a spiritual attack. It could be all of those things. I mean, we can make the argument they at least leverage each other, if not at least, at the minimum, overlap with each other. I think saying that depression is only spiritual can be a little bit of a mistake here. Let me be very careful in saying this, so you be careful in listening to it. But there's just really no fruit in denying that there are chemical imbalances that came with the human body by virtue of the fall. We weren't just spiritually broken people because of the fall. We were physically broken people as well. We're holistically broken, I guess you can say, right? Holistically. So treating depression as something that is only spiritual, only spiritual, ignores the totality of the reach of the fall. In fact, Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones, some of you have read his work. He's, he is a high scholar. He's written some really good, helpful material. Lots of pastors turn to his work. Here's the thing about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, though. He's not a doctor because he went to seminary for a long time, like most that write books to Christians and pastors. He's a doctor because he's a medical doctor. He's a brilliant man who has deep insight to passages like this. And this is what he says about the 42nd Psalm. He says that these symptoms that you read are symptoms of clinical depression. This man, not eating, not sleeping, that has ramifications, deep ramifications. It's true. Our poet today, he doesn't feel God's presence. That's a spiritual truth. That's a reality spiritually. But he's also not sleeping. And he's also not eating. And one is leveraging the other. They're mingled. It's a bit more complicated. I think spiritual depressions can also come because of something scary happening in our life. Some event, some moment. Someone got diagnosed with something. There was an accident. Someone was lost. A job, a person, anything that tells you that God is no longer interested in you and hope is nowhere to be found. Some event Listen, even personality and temperament can swerve some people closer to being downcast more than others. This is why I think it's important that we get to know ourselves a little bit. I think it's important to have a good emotional intelligence and just know how God wound you. What good would it be for me to know every detail about my wife and know no details about myself? What kind of relationship would that be? Yet we go on and we study and we research God through all the study notes in the world, trying to learn every nook and cranny of who God is, and we know nothing about ourselves and expect a functional relationship. It's not going to work that way. You've got to get to know who you are as well. 
This is what Jones says in his book, Spiritual Depression. He says, temperament, psychology, and makeup do not make the slightest difference in the matter of our salvation. We are all saved by the same way, by the same act of God, in and through his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is. Alpha male, beta, doesn't matter. Same gospel, same sin, same spiritual death, same new life. Right? doesn't matter how, how you entered this world the gospel is the power of salvation for all. It doesn't matter what part of your personality hears it. Now, but he does say this and add this to the end. But our temperament does make a very great difference in actual experience in the Christian life. That totally makes sense. For, for introverts and extroverts. I'm an introvert. I don't tell you. I'm an introvert, right? And this is what introverts do. We can get alone and we can create space to think with no one else to see what we're thinking about. And we could churn thoughts over and over again, can't we? And just go through analysis paralysis with no one around to say, that's a stupid thing, that's not even true, that's unbiblical, no balance, no pushback, no nothing. And listen, you want a quick route to getting depressed? Make sure that the only voice you ever hear is your own. You'll be depressed. It won't take long to get there. But it's not just for introverts, is it? It's for extroverts. I know some classic capital E extroverts, and their highs are super high, and their lows, they're just as low. Their highs, you can't stop them. There's nothing they can't do on top of the world. And then when they're in their lows, they're in a dark hole, and it doesn't look like they're ever coming out. In fact, if, if that might be you, you've probably caught yourself wishing that you had more of a flat line as far as a personality because those lows are so dark that the highs just don't even matter anymore. I think all of us could probably find some sort of resonance in that to some degree. I mean, just by virtue of the fall, just the things that we've talked about, there is so much that can push us and provoke the feeling that God has left and he's not coming back. We go somewhere to, to get presence and it's just a dry riverbed. Broken bodies might do it, broken moments might do it, broken souls might do it, all of us having this feeling that God has left us. Now, with all of that being said, it also must be said, depression is ultimately a spiritual issue. I know it sounds like I'm undoing everything I just said. Depression is ultimately a spiritual issue, but it may not always be just a spiritual issue. It may not always be just a spiritual issue. It might be mingled with some of the things that we just mentioned, which makes sense. It's ultimately a spiritual issue because having a downcast soul is where you find yourself at that spiritual juncture where you believe that God is gone, he's not good, doesn't care for you, never going to show up again, he only means to hurt you. That's a spiritual thing. But you might also have a temperament that's not helping. You might have a chemical imbalance that's certainly not helping. You might be in the middle of the worst season of your life and that's certainly not going to help either. It's just complicated. A little bit complicated. And there's other myths around it as well. I mean, let me just throw another myth out there. A downcast soul, it's not just for those people that disobey. <laughs> Depression doesn't just visit those who have a poor performance. It's true there is a heavy hand of of suffering through depression that will sit on those who live in an active, sinful, unrepentant lifestyle, but it's also going to find those who are radically obedient. It's not a respecter. It, it, no one's immune. It's going to find both ends of the spectrum. If you find yourself in active, unrepentant sin, it's not going to be long before depression comes and starts to suffocate you. You cannot 
You cannot enjoy Jesus and enjoy the sin he came to die for at the same time. <laughs> you can't do it. You cannot. It's 100% impossible to enjoy active, unrepentant sin and Jesus at the same time. You might actually enjoy your sin and enjoy the idea of being a Christian at the same time. It won't take long, it won't take long for depression to come. Listen, this is why some of you have a sharp spiritual depression right now. For some of you, it's really not all that complicated. You're just an act of sin. You know it, you haven't felt like repenting for it, you keep telling yourself it's not that big of a deal, you keep telling yourself it's not even a sin, you're starting to make excuses for it, you're starting to Christianize it, you're starting to do all kinds of things, and yet that pervasive depression is all over you. It's not complicated. And here's another statement, that depression that you're feeling, if that's you, that's a gift of kindness from God that's meant to lead you to repentance. <laughs> Think about it that way, that depression is actually a gift of kindness because God knows that the best place for you, the healthiest place for you, is in a repentant posture away from all the sin. Be thankful for that. I mean, look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is gonna be helpful for you. Just flip back a little bit if you're in a Bible. If not, just stay where you're at. I'm only gonna read the first few verses. This is, yeah, this is David. And David says this, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But capture what he says in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. As by the heat of summer, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Man, listen to David if that's you. Listen to David if that's you. But the exact opposite can be the case too. Fierce obedience is a fine recruiter for suffering. It's a fine recruiter for that. Men and women who have lived on this earth, who have been titans in our faith, have found steep depression for doing nothing other than what we would all hope to do as growing disciples. Read some of the biographies of Charles Haddon Spurgeon or Martin Luther or Johnny Totter or Jonathan Edwards or John Piper or a million others, right? And they will all talk about seasons where it took everything in them just to get out of bed. We're talking about people that are reaching with God with both arms. And this might be you reaching for God as hard as you can and just need to let you know you're in good company. Christ himself found a pretty dark night of the soul not for being disobedient, but for being obedient. But for being obedient. Finding a drought Instead of water, that's reserved for some of the greatest disciples who live. That's not, the, that's not the most popular theology in the world either, by the way. God, the God can take even something like depression, a downcast life, and employ it so that you, being downcast, might know Jesus better? How does the physics on that work, Right? But just know that whenever you are suffering in a downcast place, you're actually sharing a moment with Jesus that you can't get any other way. You can't. 
There's a bond nurtured in those moments that you can't find through any other avenue. That's why you can have a tailgate friend, and they're a pretty good friend, right? A high-five friend. But then if you have a friend that you suffered through something deep, and they are suffering right there with you, and your tears are matched by their tears, that's a totally different relationship. And you can't build those for free. It comes through suffering. Listen, friends, don't even bother. Don't even bother praying, Lord, I want to know you more if you're not interested in recruiting this level of suffering. If you're not interested in sharing every single experience with Jesus, don't even do it. So I think the psalm holds a lot of value for us. A church that is full of chronically depressed and downcast people because we also happen to be a church on mission to a city full of chronically depressed and downcast people. I mean, there are a lot of people that woke up this morning under a bridge intensely downcast. And then there's people that woke up in a mansion today that are intensely downcast because it just rips through every demographic. And this is so true that this poet does something that not all the other psalmists do and employs a second word picture for us. Most of them, they find one, this guy gets another one, and he finds water, right? Notice the theme of water. He goes to water, finds none. The only water he gets are his tears, and then the water coming down from Mount Hermon into the sea, that's the water that's killing him, right? Some of you, you caught that. But he traces the origins of the sea all the way up the Jordan River, the slopes of Mount Hermon, where the Jordan River starts, that word Jordan means descends. So it's descending all the way into a chaotic sea, a scary place. The psalmist in Psalm 69 captures it even better, I think. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck and I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Man, anyone who's got breath has felt this. Your neighbors, everyone. No, no one in this room has not felt it, or you will feel it. And I'm resolved that the biggest difference between those who love Jesus and those who deny Jesus, it's not the pain level of depression that comes. It's the understanding and the closed grip around the fact that God is there, and he is good, and he's carrying hope with him. Listen, if, for, for the people of our city that don't have that trust in Christ, what on earth do they have? I mean, at that point, I understand medication. And I don't just mean, I don't mean a prescription medication. I mean meth. Starts to make a little bit more sense. If you're smothering and suffocating and there's no way out. For people that just try to escape by any means necessary, what else do they have? They're painting their whole world black. Why be sober? But for those of us who know the Lord... We have a beautiful picture here, don't we? We have a picture of a person who is wrestling. We have a musician that's wrestling with how he feels in one hand and what he remembers about God in the other, the nostalgia of God, which is what he shows us here. It's a war between the gut and the heart. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude-keeping festival. Okay, this is what we're after right here. This is the meat for this passage. These are heavy emotions, but it's within a framework of good doctrine. It's within a framework of what he knows about God to be true, about God and about himself. 
And that's what we want. That's really the main idea of the whole series, not just this psalm, but it's how we walk as Christians with unfiltered emotions, raw, authentic emotions, yet at the same time holding on to the truth of the gospel, who God is, what he has done for mankind through the person of Jesus and what that says about us. It's holding on to both at the same time. It requires honesty. Listen, if you, if you feel like God is wiping you out, tell him. If, if you're looking and can't find him, let him know. Have a long talk with him about it. Let him know how ticked off you are. Let him know how much it hurts. It's not immature to do that. It's not even a sin. It's a first step. It's a first step. I mean, the goal in our emotional journey as Christians is not to fumigate all the bugs out of how we feel and bring something a little bit more, I guess, tolerable. I mean, it's to bring our everything and just put it at his feet and be totally honest with him. And doing so with a remembrance of who God is and what he has done. Listen, if you're depressed today, the fight for you is going to be holding on to that authentic pain with one hand and with the other remembering who God is and what he has done for you through Jesus, both at the same time. If one falls out, everything breaks. If all you do is you just, you just focus on who God is, but you ignore how bad you feel. You're just dishonest as a disciple. You're not integrated as a disciple. You are disintegrated. You are dysfunctional. But if all you do is hold on to the raw emotions and the guts of what you're going through and then you forgot what God has done, what does that make you? You're just spinning your tires emotionally. You're not moving anywhere. There's no nostalgia at all. So there is room for us to repent in this, right? And I know repenting for being downcast, it sounds like we're repenting from getting shot or getting a disease or something that we didn't ask for, right? We're not really repenting for feeling depressed. What I would submit that we repent for is feeding that despair that comes. Feeding the despair that comes with it sometimes. That, I think, requires repentance. Listen, despair, that's just a dry place with no hope. It's a refusal to fight. It's just a refusal to believe that there's ever going to be a good day again a strong day, a safe day again. It's a repression of hope altogether. It's a statement of God, you are not good, you are not here, you are oppressive, and you are mean. That's despair. That we can repent with. We, 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 could, we could start there. Some of you in this room have stopped hoping. You've given in to despair, and you've started accusing and it's with a downcast life that you just look at the broken pieces around you and you've just made peace that that's just the way it's going to be from here on out. Broken marriage, I guess that's the way it's going to be. Broken life, broken body, you just look at the broken pieces and you've just resolved. It's just not going to get any better. You've lost hope. You're feeding despair. And with that, you're saying, God's not good at all keep coming and I keep looking and he's not here. This is what this is what Dan Allender says in his book The Cry of the Soul. It's a very helpful way of looking at despair. He says despair looks at the world and says, I am alone. No one can help me. No one cares about me. Worse still, people stand against me. They not only avoid helping me, they try to make my life even more miserable than it is. Despair looks at the world and says, I have no hope. Things are not going to get better. Any indication that they might, it's an illusion. Therefore, I must not allow myself to hope again because I will only be bitterly disappointed. 
But again, as we've said, hope is not a small thing, is it? Losing that hope, feeding despair, is a statement that God is not God. It's a statement that God is not God. Now here's the shocker about this passage. The poet is not asking for God to fix things. He's asking for God to come back. The answer to this guy's prayer is God's closeness. When will I see your face again, right? His face again. This guy wants to see the face of God. This is where Christ, this is where Jesus Christ enters this psalm, who's not even mentioned in this psalm. Christ who is the face of God himself. Christ himself, who is in the image of God himself. He's not in this psalm, and yet he has fulfilled this psalm. Because he is our deeper hero poet, who felt the waters of chaos wash over him as he sank. Tearful, downcast to the very core, Jesus is the ultimate abandoned worshiper. Looking, but not finding. This is why you find him in the gospel saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus' most excruciating moment. And it's not got anything to do with the physicality of it. It's the emotional aspect of the cross that was the most hurtful. Because God is gone. His presence has been removed. Friends, listen, if you struggle with this part of the gospel story, if you struggle with this aspect of the atonement, I totally get it. In fact, you should struggle. I get why this is hard, this part of the, the picture of the cross. I've actually lost good friends over disagreement over this piece of doctrine right here. If you struggle with this part of the atonement, this part where God the Father removes his presence from God the Son for that moment, and for that moment we don't know how long that moment is, we imagine in our mind that it's a brief moment so it couldn't have hurt that bad because Jesus knew he was going to get through it. Doubt that's how that went down. I'm sure it was felt in this immeasurable cosmic weight. I'm sure it didn't feel like three minutes for him. If we struggle with this, this removal of God's felt presence, you should struggle because it's just a suspicion in you that the absence of God is more than just uncomfortable. But it's cosmically debilitating. It ruins us. It doesn't just discomfort us. It's unbearable. It's the same reason you should struggle with the idea of hell. You should struggle with that. The emotional pain from the absence of God's presence on the cross was part of God's will that his glory would be shown. I'm going to say that again. The emotional pain that Christ felt from the absence of God's presence on the cross was part of God's brilliant will that God's glory would be shown. Because not only would justice be complete, grace would be fully experienced at the same time. Consider this. The same God that would remove his presence in that moment is the same God that would receive it upon himself. <laughs> it's the same God that would take it. God would take his own wrath. That's what the gospel story is a story about, a God that loves us enough that he would take his own wrath. It's not just the perfect judge. It's the perfect sacrifice, all at the same moment. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. Listen, if you're not 
quick. Just stay where you're at. I'm going to read just a couple verses out of this. I'm going to be in verse 4. Surely, this is 700 years before the cross, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Smitten by God and afflicted. By who? By God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. By who? By God. He was crushed for our iniquities by God. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We turned away everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord has done this. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It says later on that it was the Lord's will to crush him. It's the love of God that he took his own wrath and gave us wrathful people a grace and a love instead. Jesus is in this psalm. Jesus is squarely in the middle of this psalm. He's praying through this poet. He's empathizing with this devastating feeling of the Father's felt absence. If ever anyone went to a brook to find strength and sustenance, Christ did in that moment. Washed over by chaos instead, lonely, weary of even hope itself. Listen, if you have felt depression, even momentarily, while you've walked along this jagged planet, know that you're sharing something with Christ. He has felt this immeasurably. Immeasurably. It says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So if you suffer from sort of spiritual depression of some flavor, you can find company in Christ. Jesus' cry of despair on that cross, it reforms ours. And it's also a down payment on our hope. It's a down payment on our hope. So real quickly, before we stand up, I want to drive this into a level of application. Okay, Because like we've said the last two weeks, some of these psalms are, are fun for us to read, and they seem beautiful as we read them, but they also seem kind of unhelpful kind of awkward and clumsy sometimes. We just, we don't know what to do with them, so we just kind of read them and then flip the page and and read the next one, I guess. But how do we make a psalm like this helpful? There are books and sermon series just on that. I'm going to pick one thing, and it's the one thing that actually populates this main stanza that goes from that one into the next psalm as well. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God? I want to just talk just for a second, a very brief one, on self-communing. Some people call it preaching the gospel to yourself. That's fine. Some people call it self-preaching. That works too. But we're seeing this poet encourage himself, enough to where it's the main stanza of two psalms. We get to see him dig in and fight a little bit. That's what you're seeing. He's not surrendering to the emotions of this discouragement. He's He's just somewhere in between. He's not ignoring the pressures and the pain that suffocates him, but he's not letting go of who God is and what God has done. Friends, listen, I've lost count how many times I have fought back heavy discouragement through something like this, and that's just since I moved here. How many times I have had to self-commune, preach the gospel to myself. And when I do this well, and when I do this thoroughly, is when I find myself the healthiest. This nostalgia, I guess, that we find this psalmist doing, 
running through that same exercise. I jotted this down. I did this two or three weeks ago, and I found it in my journal. This is me doing it on paper. I wrote this down. Luke, where is your trust? This is not your home. You're just passing through this place. You'll die here, and you'll find out that your time here was only a wisp of vapor compared to your true lifespan. You've only caught glimpses of God, but will one day see the sun fully, so don't be downcast. Praise him. He holds the cosmos in his hand. He's mocked death itself. So Luke, you are safe. He's created a place at his table for you. That seed is saved. It will not be given up. It is for you because you are loved. This day will pass and a thousand will come with their own hits and wins. But today, sit with Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. He is coming. He is coming soon. Listen, I can do that in 30 seconds. I can do that in three hours. I know because I've done it both a bunch. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Reminding yourself of who God is and what he has done for us. This is why I said earlier, if this is your psalm, make it your psalm. Commit it to more than just memory. Commit it to your soul. Make it your sermon. Build your own sermon for yourself. One you can preach quickly, one that will take you a little while to preach. So that when you self-sermonize, you find yourself doing something very similar to what the psalmist is doing. You know, there's no definitive resolution in this psalm. You caught that, I'm sure. There's no big confidence celebration at the end, like a nice bow tied onto the backside of it to make everyone feel good. There is a heavy anticipation, right? And sometimes that's the best we can do. Is there a happy ending in this? I get, it's like everything else in life. It's kind of mixed, right? But the psalm ends with more hope than it does resolution. But again, I think we've seen hope is no small thing. Hope is no small thing. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to shut this down. And the team's about to come out and lead us. The team's about to come out and lead us. And as the team is playing and as you're worshiping, you have opportunities to go back to the table. If you're a Christian, you love Jesus, we just invite you to take communion with us as a church. We don't really do it all at one, one big time. We just go back at different points in time during the songs that we'll be playing. If you're not a Christian and you're just kind of searching or testing this out or just, you just came to listen, we would invite you not to take the communion with us, but actually to take Jesus instead. To pray to Jesus instead, maybe even for the first time for some of you. Okay? But as you go back there, I just want to charge you. I just want to charge you just for a moment. Right? Consider if you have depression because you're in active sin, Consider if you have depression because you're actively obedient. Consider why that depression is there. You might not even know. But as you find yourself in that depression, can you at least share that moment with Christ? Can you have hope? Can you see the hope that he carries with him? How have you been handling despair? These are questions you want to kind of orbit and ask yourself as you're back there in your own way. But hope is no small thing. Gabriel Marcel, who's a French philosopher, he's a pretty prolific writer as well. I like how he calls it. He says, hope is a memory of the future. It's a memory of the future. Something that we 
believe and anticipate so strongly, it feels like it's already happened, something inside of us. Listen, as I take communion today, I know I cannot despair over loss in this life. I cannot despair over it and be downcast without also anticipating a day where Christ comes and undoes everything. I can't be downcast without knowing that every tear I cry is matched by a tear that Christ has cried. I can't, I can't do it without knowing that every scar I've got from this broken place is hidden inside of his scars, and my tears hidden inside of his tears, my pain mingled inside of his pain. I'm sharing it with him. One thing I do know with this psalmist is God is here. He is good. He is coming. He is coming soon. He's going to change everything for all of us. Amen. We can have hope. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. I thank you that you, you in your brilliance, have spoken to people that can find depression awfully fast. We, we could be depressed for a million different reasons. And yet you are not some priest that does not understand that. You're not some, you're not some king poet that, that, that has not felt the same thing, that has not been tempted to despair, just like we are tempted to despair. You're a beautiful priest, and you've done beautiful things for your people. You have given wrath to wipe out sin, to bring pure justice to this place, and then you received it at the very same time to give grace to us, a wrathful people not deserving of it. So as we sing and as we take bread and wine, as we, as we take the elements in the back, we do so in celebration of what you've done. Father, I thank you that we could come with just a real, true, visceral honesty. We could be very authentic with how we feel. And you don't rebuke us for that. And then at the same time, Father, you've given us great reason to celebrate for what you've done. That we can be nostalgic of your gospel. We can, we can think of what you've done and how beautiful it is and where you're leading us to. But that bread and that wine does not just symbolize a broken up body. It symbolizes a new banquet, a new festival waiting for us where we have a place made for your people where we could come as sons and daughters and celebrate with a new family in a new earth, in a new heavens. We can do this. So much to celebrate, so much to be thankful. So we could carry our pain in one hand, we could carry your promise in the other, and we can still grow. Some of the depressions in this room and in this city, I don't understand. I don't understand why they're there. I don't understand why people are experiencing them. But I trust you. I trust you, Lord. Help us be a trusting people. We ask for your Holy Spirit to minister to us as we make sense of these things, as we wrestle with these things. And then help us, Lord, commit passages like this to where we can war when the, when the time comes. So when discouragement comes and when depression comes and downcast spirit is over us and we run to a river and there's no water there, at that time we can stop and we can say, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you downcast? Praise God. Lord, help us be good ministers of the gospel, even to ourselves. We love you, Father. We thank you for being so great and so noble and so beautiful, so brilliant, so wise, so kind, and so gentle with us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.